0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined uh, for an extraordinary episode of The Pillar Podcast uh, this week by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And the reason why this is an extraordinary episode, uh, well, first of all, because we're recording it outside on a terrace in the Eternal City, just two blocks, I think, from... St. Peter's Basilica, if that. Um, And also because, Ed, we are going to spend most of this episode talking about something that neither one of us expected to talk about today very much, but we are going to spend most of this episode talking about liturgy and about the extraordinary form of the liturgy and some changes that the Holy Father has introduced to uh, the uh, rules kind of regulating the extraordinary form of the liturgy just this morning. We're recording this podcast on Friday, the 16th of July. And this morning, Pope Francis issued a motu proprio called *Traditiones Custodes, or something to that effect, um, and uh, which essentially changes some of the governing rules for the extraordinary form of the mass. And that's what we're going to talk about. But first of all, how are you? I'm doing dandy, JD.
1: Um, it was a long flight, but we survived, and that's good. It's always nice to be back in Rome. The weather is much better here than it was in Washington, so I'm grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you know, we are staying in. Uh, we're staying in one of my favorite hotels to stay in here in Rome. We're staying in the. It's a very nice hotel. I
1: I recommend it highly um, to people who I would recommend hotels to, which is not
0: many because I like it here and I don't want people to come here. Yeah, but um, I would also recommend the to people and encourage them to stay here it's a great place not that we're getting paid to stay here or something like that or this is some sort of product placement i just like it here yeah no it's very nice i in fact i've
1: only ever really stayed on on this street in rome um if not at this hotel then there's an airbnb also on the street that i have used before that i quite like it's uh it's all very
0: homely it's all very quiet and i feel very edified because um they like me here at the and they gave me a better room than they gave you and by several metrics, and so I'm very pleased about that. And, and greeted you warmly when you walked in the door by <laughs> I sight. I was I very impressed.
1: Seagulls. There's a seagull. Yeah, they um, did, they did. They like me here, and I like them, so it's a great. great I was impressed thing. by that. I mean, I put a lot of stock in places that remember you, and you haven't been to Rome in, well, more than a year. Well, for I haven't sure. been to Rome
0: in more than a year, um, but I, you know, and I like to go where everybody knows my name, you know, and here, they seemed uh, glad that I came.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was impressed
0: with that. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, listen, what we need to talk about the, right now is the promulgation of the motu proprio traditiones custodes. And in order to do that, we're going to kind of give a summary of what the motu proprio says and uh, talk about some open questions that I think are not yet resolved in the motu proprio. And then we can talk about sort of the broader set of um, questions that it raises or Um, circumstances it identifies in the life of the church. But before we do any of that, I feel like it would be helpful to kind of give a little bit of primer for people who don't know that much about liturgy, or don't even know, or don't know perhaps that they don't know that much about liturgy, Uh, which is to say we're going to use some jargon probably in this episode, so it might be helpful to sort of talk just for two to five minutes about what that jargon is. Sure, and for anyone who's
1: interested, we actually did a lexicon on the Latin liturgy for exactly this. Eventuality, I guess it was last week, maybe the week before. Yeah. Um, so, yes, what we're dealing with is a motu proprio, which, well, it, well, we'll get onto the potted history in a moment, but the thing to know about is it doesn't just sort of change or tinker with or amend the uh, freedom and ability and circumstances under which one could celebrate or participate in the celebration of the so called extraordinary form, it replaces them wholesale. Uh, this isn't a nibbling around the edges. This is everything which came before is gone, and there is only that which is now. Which is pretty dramatic, usually, uh, especially when you're dealing with new new laws or legal instruments that that amend or deal with the laws of one's predecessors, especially one's immediate predecessors. There's, there's always the tendency to sort of look for continuity, to, to sort of try and turn what came before towards what you'd like it to be now. Whereas in this case, what we're seeing is just the wholesale replacement, which
0: is quite interesting in itself. But, it is very interesting, but Ed, before we go there, what, why don't you help the people? Uh, what is the extraordinary form the of extraordinary the Mass? extraordinary form here? of the Mass, what we're talking about
1: there is the last Roman Missal, the last approved liturgy, uh, which was brought into circulation prior to the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So we are not talking about um, what people would normally encounter in their church on a Sunday, The somewhat anachronistically termed novus ordo, which is the ordinary celebration of the Mass and has been for, well, more than 50 years now, Um, we are talking about the pre-conciliar rite of the Mass.
0: So what might be said, I mean, there are many, many ways to say it. It has many, many sort of nicknames and and monikers, but what might be kind of referred to in one way as the pre-Vatican II Mass, the the Mass of the period in the Church before the Second Vatican Council, even though the actual sort of text that's used for the Mass uh, that's that's celebrated by, you know, that's celebrated by people who who celebrate the Extraordinary Form was promulgated during the Second Vatican Council, yeah, in 1962. But anyway, what we're talking about is what people generally refer to as sort of the TLM, the Traditional Latin Mass, or the Usus Antiquor, or the bl- old Mass, or what else? I don't know what else people call it. Well, people
1: sometimes refer Trentine, to Tredentine... Yeah, but it's not
0: the tridentine yeah, Mass. The That's mass, the thing. Yeah. Is the Tredentine Mass itself
1: is something which, can, which I guess would have been last sort of promulgated or tinkered with or um, updated in the fifties, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So what we're dealing with here is not the Tredentine Mass, strictly speaking. This is uh, the, just the
0: last. Missile promulgated before the Reforms of Vatican II came into force. Yeah, and I, I am not a liturgical historian, so um, I... Could not give sort of wholesale history of, of the sort of development of various missiles, and, and neither are you, and no. um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, what can be said is we're talking about the, the uh, extraordinary form of the Mass, which was the Mass by and large sort of celebrated according to the form uh, which was used for Mass prior to the revisions of the Second Vatican Council and the Roman Missal that was promulgated in 1970 that sort of reflected those things. Roman Missal, by the way, is like the big book of the, the big text that tells the priests sort of what to do and what to say. He celebrates Mass. It's the playbook for Mass. And so there was a playbook for Mass that was promulgated in 1962 that told the priest what to say. And then there was a playbook, a sort of interim playbook that was promulgated in 1965. And then a a playbook that was promulgated in 1970 that reflected ostensibly the changes of the Second Vatican Council. And um, and it's that 1962 sort of playbook that we're talking about when we talk about the extraordinary form. And there are, I think, as most listeners realize, um, communities of Catholics all around the world who for theological reasons, I think social reasons, cultural reasons, aesthetic reasons um uh, all of the above uh have sort of remained attached to the 1962 missal or become attached to the 1962 missal and celebrate mass according to it and uh and pope benedict the 16th when he was pope really expanded the permission of priests to offer the extraordinary what he called the extraordinary form of the mass that 1962 missal and for people who love that mass to be able to go uh to, to celebrate that mass and the reason he did so is because one of the things that has happened since the second vatican council um is a sort of uh, or one of the reasons why he did so is is that one of the things that happened in the aftermath of the second Vatican council is that people who opposed the changes to the liturgy, um, began to form sort of breakaway groups of various kinds from the church and sort of left the full communion of the church because of their desire to celebrate the, the old liturgy. So, um, Pope John Paul II made some overtures towards such people, but Benedict all the more um, made a lot of overtures to them, kind of culminating in this uh, thing that he issued in 2007 called Sumorum Pontificum, which broadly expanded the rights or or the privilege, I suppose, of priests to celebrate the the extraordinary form and for uh, Catholics to attend Mass celebrated according to the extraordinary form within the communion of the church. And and I think probably the most key reform of the pontificum
1: in 2007 was the provision that if there is a stable community in a parish or in any place that would like it, it was effectively incumbent on the pastor to provide for their
0: desire. And and if he didn't, I mean Sumorum was very, very clear uh, Benedict was very, very clear that he wanted people who had an attachment to this kind of mass to be able to go to this kind of mass within the communion of the church and even within the communion of their parish. In large part because he saw the kind of breakaway groups that were losing communion with the church because of their attachment to the mass and he wanted to accommodate them. There are other reasons too uh, that he wanted to do this which included his belief that the celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass would, would become a sort of germinating factor in the reverent celebration of the ordinary form of the Mass. But anyhow, Benedict did this because he wanted to, uh, uh, you know, for for these various reasons. And, as you say, it was incumbent on the pastor to sort of respond to the desire of a stable community in the parish. And if the pastor didn't, the motu proprio sumorum pontificum from Benedict sort of provided that people could go to the bishop to get this resolved. And if they couldn't get that resolved at the bishop, it even pres- provided that there was an office at the Holy See, at the Vatican, the Ecclesia Dei Commission, which they could go to to sort of try to seek some resolution if the bishop wouldn't provide for them. So in the law, there had been, or now we've had more than a decade of real provision and allowance, almost ha- almost a decade and a half, real provision and allowance for the celebration of this kind of mass. And what's happened over that period of time uh, is that devotion to it has spread profusely. Yes. Um, certainly in the United States, certainly among practicing Catholics in Europe, um, but not exclusive to those places. I, I was realizing today, I was in Kenya two years ago, right now like just you know exactly two years ago i was in kenya two years ago and i was surprised to discover a community of kenyans who had had themselves an attachment to the extraordinary form of the mass and you don't sort of often hear about that you often hear that it's that that attachment is a very north american phenomenon or a very sort of old world conservative phenomenon but i was surprised to discover that that was not the case at least um, at least when i was visiting kenya and i suspect that's true in other parts of the world as well in fact one of the things that benedict was trying to curtail was a profusion of breakaway groups of people who preferred the extraordinary form of the mass the old mass if you will um, in South America mm-hmm. where um, where you, you have now seen especially in Brazil um, a, a, you know a, a great sort of flourishing of people who have an attachment to the extraordinary form of the mass
1: yeah and I, I mean I think it's interesting to, to sort of note the, the change of who's going to this. Mass who has been making use of of the sort of privileges extended by in Pontificum because for sure when JP2 first started broadening access to the extraordinary form it was very much in response to the
0: sort of Lefevreite schism of the 1980s. Which are a breakaway group if you're not so familiar with it a, a group that broke away for the reasons I described earlier. Yeah and I mean
1: in a particularly dramatic way involving a bishop consecrating right. other bishops and you know basically setting up a, a church out of communion with Rome. Um, and so there's that and you know, we're now, as we were saying, more than 50 years away from the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. There aren't many left, I think, just as a demographic cohort who remember the pre-Vatican right. II era. That's not who's going to these masses by and large. It's people who've been drawn to them as something new, not as the thing they grew up with and missed, but as a, a thing that is different to the thing that they grew up with. And I mean, I it has been... Um, It's certainly very much outside of my own experience, but I'm certainly aware that it has been part of um, the conversion of a great many Catholics that I know. I I can think of a handful of priests off the top of my head who were not just um, not discerning a vocation, they were outside of the church entirely, in some cases not even baptized Catholics, who through sort of haphazard encounter with the celebration of the extraordinary form of the mass found, found in it a kind of theophany, found in it a way of perceiving that there was something divine going on here, something profound and reverential that was well outside of themselves and outside of really the confines of time and space, which of course is what mass, the celebration of mass is. And it was through the, the liturgical aspect of this that they were brought into the faith in the first place and in many cases discovered their vocation to the priesthood that you know the vocation of the priesthood should of course be rooted in the sacramental ministry of the priesthood and above all in the celebration of the mass and so the mass that they were drawn to and in which they discovered their vocation is this extraordinary form so i think this is going to be um felt keenly by that demographic this isn't going to this isn't a question of you know we i i don't think what we're seeing is a a move to stop those who want to turn back the clock to the time that they remember. This is really um, about, I think, stopping something new, which is growing up in the
0: church. And and we'll talk about the reasons why the Pope says he wants to stop that something new or at least curtail it, but not just people who have had conversions. I, I think there are some other groups. So I think my observation has been sort of sociologically that there are a lot of people who have become attracted to extraordinary foreign parishes because of the experience of poor catechesis, Discouragingly poor litur- liturgy, or I would say I can think of a number of examples where people would say that, that they found themselves attracted to extraordinary foreign parishes because of anemic pastoral care in their in their own parishes. That they felt like they were just a number in a, sort of a big suburban factory. And and I don't say that disrespectfully to pastors of big suburban parishes, but you know I think that that in such a place it becomes sort of um, incumbent upon the pastoral leadership of the parish to sort of help people find themselves connected to um, a group, uh, a community that ha- to which they have, you know, real bonds and in which they have real accountability and real support and those kinds of things. And that's not always easy. And, well, and ironically, that was one of
1: the key liturgical priorities of the reforms of Vatican II was that there had to be a full active spiritual yeah. participation by all the faithful in the celebration of the mass, yeah. that the idea that you could have a silent and anonymous sort of right. mass of people there right. who weren't connected to each other or to what was going Going on, on the altar was was not in keeping with yeah. the proper celebration of the mass. But I, sorry, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is I, I think um, you know it's also true that a lot of people have been drawn to the extraordinary form of the mass because of, as you say, um, either irreverent or not especially careful celebration of the ordinary form of the mass. In many places. And I mean, it's worth noting, and this is something that liturgists have been noting and complaining about for virtually since uh, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, which is what the Council offered and laid down for the reform of the liturgy in, uh, in the new ordinary form, um, has not necessarily been the way in which it has been celebrated in yeah. many places and many times. So when Benedict, for example, was talking about hoping that um, a broadened access to the extraordinary form would would spark a a greater sense of reverence and a greater care in the celebration of the ordinary form, I don't think that was necessarily a misplaced um, aspiration. In fact, I I think it's probably borne a lot of that fruit. I think priests who, for example, were drawn into the priesthood through the extraordinary form, of course, they cannot just be celebrating the extraordinary form in their pastoral ministry, but are likely to try and carry over much of of the sort of reverential care that yeah. goes into the celebration of the extraordinary form into the celebration of the ordinary form and within the ordinary form the way in which it is celebrated is incredibly diverse and not always in a healthy way there are definitely and anyone who's been to you know more than one parish and more than one place knows that there are masses and there are masses and yes assuming they're all Sacramentally valid. They are all miraculous and they all have the same power in that sense. But there can be a very, very broad
0: disparity in how how the liturgy is offered. And sometimes I think there's a sense and this kind of will get us into the mode appropriate a little bit, but sometimes I think there's a sense that sort of someone who would be going to another place or becoming attracted to another form of the mass or something like that because of the liturgy or because of d- d- frustration with sort of irreverent or lackluster or an celebration of the liturgy in their own parish that such a person is being kind of fussy it's like well what's the big deal and i i do think there's a way in which one must be careful about sort of developing too much liturgical fussiness you and i were talking about that last night i can't remember who who we were talking about, but we were talking about somebody we know with being particularly fussy, and uh, and just the sort of uh, the, the way in which that can become over the top very quickly. Well, there's a difference between reverence and prissiness, right? Exactly, and that's what I was going to say. But it, the, the mass is the highest thing that we do. The mass is the worship that we offer to god the thing for which we're created is to offer worship to god and so wanting to do that in a way which is consistent with both our dignity and god's is not i don't think fussy i think there is a way in which one can become sort of overly prissy about each each little thing and have and become sort of way too invested in things which are sort of not proper to oneself but
1: well you could become obsessed with the parts rather than their whole
0: yeah but to desire that we worship god in a way that is beautiful um, and and true and reflective of truth, and uh, reverent and, and pious in, in the in the in the true sense, and, and filial is not fussy. It's a, it's a it's an ordinary desire. I think of a Christian as we grow in the spiritual life to want to ever more worship God in accord with who He is and and who we are. So I don't I don't think that's fussy. But no. um, but there's a way in which that that can be the perception. And I should say I think probably here that this is not um. That The Extraordinary Form of the Mass is neither my bag nor yours. Um, no. I sometimes go to the Extraordinary Form. I like going to the Extraordinary Form, but don't go with, with any regularity for a variety of reasons. But it, And I don't think that I would go with regularity for a variety of reasons. But I, I sometimes go. But I think you never go to the Extraordinary Form.
1: Uh, it's true. I, I mean, I can't say I have never been. I used to be able to say that. I went to one once over the course of the pandemic uh, just because... I had the chance and there was no masses anywhere else right. and I was doing my best to abide by the, the strictures of the bishop of the diocese in which I was present and there was a priest who had the the permission to celebrate the extraordinary form of the mass for himself and up to one or two others and so my wife and I got to go to a mass and so I'll you know in times of pandemic I'll take what I can get where I can get mm-hmm. it and thank you very much um, but no apart from that I've never been to one it's, uh, it's definitely something that's been outside of my experience I
0: don't you know, I don't have
1: a, a problem with it by any stretch of the imagination. I can see the attraction well, in many the, ways. It's the reason just... I
0: point out it's not our bag is because as we kind of talk about the mode propria, I want to be clear that we're not sort of talking about a thing that we are personally invested in. That oh, yeah. Is no. Sort of like the identifier of our own spiritual spirituality, the spiritual life of our family, the spiritual life of our community or anything like that. I mean, I, Ed, as you know, went to Steubenville. I, you know... Um, practically minored in 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 tongues, right? And uh, so, do you um, have a tambourine? Do I have a tambourine? I'm just asking. It, does, it doesn't matter whether I have a tambourine or not. I mean, you know, that's kind of a personal question, don't you? No, no Judge. I mean, you God. have small children, no Judge. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Um, do I have a tambourine? That's you don't. One thing you learn in Soumville is just you know it's 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 not considered polite generally to ask someone <laughs> if they bring their own tambourine or egg shaker to to, to mass with them. Oh, fair enough. Um, but uh, but anyhow, my point is you know I come from a very sort of different liturgical tradition, and 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 you do too. Uh, and so, um, but but there is a way I think in which anyone who kind of is observing the phenomenon of the life of the church over the last fifteen years sees that the extraordinary form it has played a major role in the life of the church in some of the ways we've talked about whether you're sort of for it or organic you can't deny that the that the extraordinary form has become significant because of a profusion of young people and young families who have become attracted to it, seminarians who have become attracted to it, priests who have become attracted to it, who say that it enriches their spiritual life, and that certainly is an attribute of ecclesial life, and uh, we can speak best about the United States, that certainly is an attribute of ecclesial life in the United States that I think it's hard to understand the ecclesial landscape without understanding that the resurgence of the extraordinary form is a, is a real phenomenon and has and really impacted the church. And yeah. it has been a driver of vocations and other things too. But I would just say, I think it can't be, you know, it, it, we have to understand that this, we're not just talking about like sort of, you know, um, 10 liturgy nerds on the internet or something like that, but that the, pair, the places where the extraordinary form is offered are full of people who, who who have found this to be um, a meaningful part of their spiritual lives, or even the anchor of their spiritual lives in one way or another.
1: Yeah, and I mean, um, th- this decision that Pope Francis has taken w- was done after a, a global survey of bishops mm-hmm. and their sort of experience of Summorum Pontificum and the broader access to the extraordinary form. And I mean, I don't know, but I I find it hard to escape the suspicion that the way in which it has fostered a particular community and a thriving community that is, you know, predominantly young, predominantly theologically very orthodox, um, one that drives a lot of vocations. And so you have a cohort of young priests with a great devotion to it. I, it it's hard to avoid the suspicion that part of this is about trying to reign in a group
0: that Maybe people don't feel they have a handle. on Yeah, or have a certain perceptions about. Well, let's talk about what the motu proprio says, and then we can talk about why we think it says it, and whether we think that's true. Um, have you had a chance to read the Moto proprio?
1: I have. I have paged through it. Once, I mean, you know, we we got this literally as we arrived at the yeah. hotel. It was Roman noon, and, yeah. and all of this was coming out. So I haven't given it the sort of three or four times in depth reading that I would okay. like to. But the the broad headline changes are pretty inescapable.
0: Yeah, let's ta- uh, let's talk about those. I, I had a chance to read through it because I wrote about it, and then I've just been in a conversation, a, a bunch of text threads with a bunch of canon lawyers all day. So I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on what it says and what the sort of open questions are at this point. But basically, um, the change the changes of um, of this new motu proprio, which is called Traditiones Custodes. And, and essentially, Pope Francis has said very clearly that it's intended to roll back the changes that Pope Benedict made in, in Samorum Pontificum. Um, the changes in Traditiones Custodes uh, do a couple of things. They seat more clearly the authority for regulating the extraordinary form in the life of the Church in the in the hands of the diocesan bishop rather than at the level of the Holy See. So one thing that Samorum Pontificum did was to establish in the universal law of the Church a right of priests to celebrate the extraordinary form privately, a right of lay people to request of their priests and receive an affirmative response, the celebration of the extraordinary form, not an unqualified right, obviously, if there's no one to do it, there's no one to do it, but um, a right to at least request it and have some expectation of it being celebrated, um, and then a sort of uh, recognition that the church would support those things. And so the diocesan bishop was not sort of legally empowered to prohibit priests from celebrating the extraordinary form privately and was not sort of formally. Prohibited from permitting priests to, um, from offering the extraordinary form in their parishes. Now, there's the law and then there's, you know, the practice of the law, and that doesn't mean that there weren't and aren't diocesan bishops who have strongly discouraged their priests from celebrating the extraordinary form or f- celebrating the extraordinary form for groups of people or made it clear that it would be politically unsavvy for a priest to celebrate the extraordinary form but at the end of the day some pontificum gave priests and especially parish pastors the right to permit this in their in their parish
1: and but i mean it is worth noting that the diocesan priest is the chief the diocesan sorry chief. the diocesan bishop is the chief priest yeah so, in, and it is is it is, in, it is part of the essential role of the diocesan bishop to be the moderator of the liturgy in his
0: diocese. So that was somewhat, ex- you, you could say that was somewhat exceptional in, in one sense. It, it all depends, I think, on how you think of the extraordinary form. If you think of the, if you think of the extraordinary form as sort of, um, which I think Benedict was sort of saying, a vital sort of part of the liturgical life of the church or, uh, you know, something which is universal, to be and ought to be universally a part of the, of the life of the church, then the diocesan bishop, you know, can't sort of cut it out. But if you, if you think of the ordinary form as the sort of central Um, and typical in the sense of being the the type liturgy in the life of the church then and you sort of think of the extraordinary form as a kind of an extra the diocesan bishop has the prerogative to make judgments kind of about extras but doesn't have the prerogative to make judgments about sort of essential things so when this sort of seats the authority in the diocesan bishop and it does that by you know saying that priests need the permission of their bishop to celebrate the extraordinary form even privately even like by themselves and in some cases uh, you know and the diocesan bishop has to approve like the celebration of the extraordinary form for a group and where that will be and when that will be and essentially vests in him the authority to make all the judgments about how the extraordinary form will enter into the life of the diocese and if it will enter into the life of the diocese. The the more sort of profound shift, I think, behind that is precisely this. A shift from saying these two things—the ordinary and extraordinary form—are both a part of sort of the essence of the universal worship of the church, to saying the ordinary form is the universal worship of the church, and this is a kind of an extra thing that the bishop can an take or leave at his own—an extraordinary thing, if you will. Yeah, um, but to take or leave at his own pleasure.
1: Yes, very much yeah. so. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, because of course, um, you know, as you said, there have been. And I'm sure there will continue to be diocesan bishops who have frowned on the use of the extraordinary form in their diocese, and that will continue. There have bishops who have been very welcoming of it, and it would seem to be that their prerogative to continue to encourage it and authorize it is preserved. I think it is fairly clear going to, to solidify um, divides between dioceses of places that are favorable to this and places that are not. And I wonder if one of the things we will see as a result of this is we will see vocation numbers drift. Uh, between dioceses that young men who would offer themselves for the priesthood in a place where they grew up and grow up with for example exposure to a community that habitually celebrates the extraordinary form now finds that they can't do that anymore if they are not going to when they come to offer themselves for the priesthood gravitate towards a diocese and a bishop that is more favorable
0: that could be what you actually had before the motu appropriate before sumororum sumorum you know you would have a sort of diocese as you can i can think of a few off the top of my head you can too where the extraordinary form was permitted sort of more freely than in other places it wasn't even called the extraordinary form then the DLM was permitted sort of more freely, um, Madison, Lincoln, Arlington, where you sort of you had a concentration of priests who had kind of a similar bent because they felt like that was a place where they'd be able to celebrate Mass as diocesan mm-hmm. priests in the way that they felt God wanted them to. Um, so, so that's one of the things. It's just this vesting, in, vesting more authority in the diocesan bishop. And the way that that happens is that priests who have heretofore celebrated the extraordinary form are required now to ask their bishops for authorization to continue doing so. Um, and new priests who wish to celebrate the extraordinary form will be required to ask their diocesan bishop for permission to do so and uh, and the, the, the motor proper talks about newly ordained priests who will wish to celebrate the extraordinary form are required to ask their diocesan bishop for permission to do so and in that case the diocesan bishop is required to consult not get permission from but consult the Holy See about whether to permit newly ordained priests to have a faculty to celebrate the extraordinary form now consulting just means consulting the Holy See can't sort of say no but what the consulting is for essentially is to make sure that the diocesan bishop isn't sort of doing too much of this right I mean it is essentially That's a, a monotone on what the diocesan bishop does
1: it, there's there's that that's a that's one way of looking at it you could also look at it as saying this is going to create a central roman register of every priest who celebrates the extraordinary yeah, people, people form. could look
0: at it that way or at least every newly ordained priest now there's a lacuna a sort of hole in the law here that i haven't quite worked out yet and i've asked a few other people and they haven't quite worked it out yet either um the the law says that uh uh priests who have been celebrating the extraordinary form can do so if their bishop gives them permission Um, uh, to continue going. And newly ordained priests can celebrate it if their bishop gives them permission and consults with Rome. So there's a third category, namely priests who are already ordained who have not heretofore celebrate the extraordinary form, but might now wish to, I presume that they fall into that first category, that they're already ordained, they need at least the permission of their bishop, um, especially since Morim is is abrogated. And so it would seem to me that they need at least the permission of their bishop. But it's a kind of an interesting hole that points to the way in which I think this legislation, I'll talk about some other holes in a minute, but the way in which this legislation, I think, kind of came together in a relatively short order, and perhaps there wasn't necessarily kind of checking on each of the each of the things and how they fit into each other but presumably every diocesan priest now needs the permission of his bishop to celebrate the extraordinary form yeah yeah and um they're not gonna be wild about that well i don't think they're gonna be wild about it um but uh okay so the next thing i just want to kind of go through the changes so the next thing is that um the location where can the extraordinary form be celebrated and this is a place that it's extremely (laughs) Tricky to kind of work this out. So, the, the bishop in a place where people want to have the extraordinary form celebrated is, according to the more proprio, to designate one or more locations where faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration. He's to designate a couple of places where they can have the extraordinary form. But the loss is this very interesting thing. Not, however, in the parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. So, first let's lop off that back thing. Without the erection of new personal parishes, what that means is that Sumorum said. Hey, if you have a bunch of people who like the extraordinary form, it said to bishops, if you have a bunch of people who like the extraordinary form, one thing you could do is kind of make a particular parish for them. It's called a personal parish, but basically a parish for all the Latin mass people. And it can be their regular parish. They can get baptized there. They can have weddings there. The priest it's there can a, be their pastor. A personal pastor. parish in the, in the law is a parish that's
1: constituted by a portion of people, not by territory. Right, by exactly. Some other qualified exactly. criteria. Mm-hmm. In this case, an affinity, an affinity for the extraordinary form.
0: Yeah and you can't do that anymore you can't make and and so a number of bishops in the United States have made personal parishes for um, people who like the extraordinary form and those don't go away but you can't make new ones anymore you can't make new ones anymore and if you can't
1: celebrate the extraordinary form of the mass in parish churches well that's
0: the tricky thing Ed what is that about? Where Where is left? Um, so, so again, just what the law says is not, however, in the parochial churches to designate places where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration. Not, however, in parochial churches. I've been trying to figure out this out all morning because most churches are parochial churches, the churches of parishes. Well, OK, but let's not make the let's not make
1: the the ultimate administrative Canonical sin of Chancery life and conflate the church building with the fact of the parish. Right, right, right. There have been, a, there are in many places, many dioceses, especially in the United States, uh, the merger of a lot of parishes true. in which there is one parish church and there will be satellite churches. True, true. Those mm-hmm. presumably would be up for such designation. There have also sadly been a lot of parishes that have just been suppressed and the property sold off and they might otherwise have been useful for this sort of thing, although I'm not quite sure how you'd constitute the care of that. I mean, it would presumably be an oratory because it couldn't
0: be. Yeah, a, maybe it would be an oratory under the care of a religious institute who offered yeah. mass in this way. So so that's one thing you could do is you could make a chapel and then have a group that celebrates the mass in this way sort of responsible for the chapel. But if you think there's a diocesan bishop in the United States who's so flush with property, he's going right. to start handing these things out instead
1: of selling it off because he needs the money, I'd, be, I'd really like to know where that is. Well,
0: it's a very Roman thing I think to think of it you're right that because of parishes being merged in some parts of the United States there are more sort of churches which are not properly speaking the seat of the parish the parish church available but that's that's I think some mostly on the East Coast kind of and a lot of them have been sold and things like that it, 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 you know it, I don't think that there are sort of just extra churches hanging around in in most parts of the country but here in Rome where we are um, here at the we could throw um, that ashtray in any direction and hit a church, which is not a parish church, but you know, a, mm-hmm. an oratory or a chapel or yeah. a basilica, or freestanding Oops. or freestanding. I kicked it. I kicked guys a mug that is out here on this terrace that we're out that I think is on the ground, so that milk can be put in it for a cat. But I didn't know it was there, so I kicked it. I'm sorry about that. It's fine.
1: Um, but no, the entire. I mean, it is true. Italy in general is resplendent with churches. Resplendent with churches, very few of them by the numbers are parish churches, properly speaking. So I think you're right. I think this is a particular um, bit of uh, cultural dissonance uh, that that muddies the application of this new motto proprio for the universal church. And it will be interesting to see how that that plays out. I'll be interested to see what does with religious houses in all of this. Um, I can certainly think of uh, a few places in the Archdiocese of Washington, for example, where there are religious houses who might be minded to provide a home for the celebration of the Extraordinary form. Yeah. How willing the Archbishop will be to authorize that, I don't know. And what kind of tug of war you would get into between um, religious superiors and the local bishop over this would be interesting to see play out. I, I don't know. It's, it, it, it doesn't seem like a system that's designed to work incredibly Fluidly, and I think the important thing um, to to know about this moto proprio, at least for me, is why it came into being in the first place and what it's actually aiming at. And for that, it's less about the mode appropriate itself, but the accompanying letter
0: that Pope Francis published with it. Could, could we do the changes and then do the letter? Sure. Okay. I just want to get through all the changes. Of and course. then Because yeah, there's this change, but then there's one other change. So there's, this change could be really significant, this parochial churches thing, because if it's true that the extraordinary form can't be celebrated in parochial churches, for some places that means essentially that it would be very difficult to have the extraordinary form at all, at least in a sacred space. I, I think this is going to have to be clarified. I think that that there may be some meaning here that, that, that has not been translated well. There's not a Latin text developed of this, of this uh, motu proprio, which typically a motu proprio is issued in Latin and that's the sort of official text and everyone can make recourse to it to see if their translation is any good, but there's not a Latin text here, so we're sort of left unsure exactly where we would even make recourse to get clarity on this i suppose to the italian which has not helped me very much but th- there's there's an ambiguity here about where the extraordinary form can be celebrated that i think is going to have to be clarified in one way or another over the next couple of days because just because it seems unlikely that every place where the extraordinary form has been being celebrated in parish churches right now the intention of the proprio is essentially to kick them out of those parish churches that doesn't sound quite right to me doesn't it <laughs> I mean, I, it just seems like it would be so that, – that if that's true, then this is the sort of ticking time bomb of the whole thing. Because if – what this means is that every extraordinary form community in a parish church is about to get booted from that parish church, that's, that is the mode appropriate. I mean, is everything that, else is – But really I mean, this
1: is why I was transitioning into talking about the accompanying letter because – to me, the purpose of the the purpose of the motu proprio, as explained in Pope Francis's own letter, seems very clear to me. Which is, this isn't about the liturgy. This is about the people.
0: Yeah, I, I I just I'd like to believe, and you know me, but I'd like to believe that there's a that the dramatic nature of this step, no extraordinary form in parish churches, which is an extraordinarily dramatic step, is in some way kind of lesser than it appears to be on its face. Because if it's not that's it. I mean, that's it. That it would be very, very hard for most places to have the extraordinary form at all, and I think for a lot of people that would be hugely disaffecting and potentially leading them to go to these breakaway communities we've been talking about, the Society of Pious and Others, which you, which uh, seem it seem would seem so. I know we're not. Talk- it would seem so difficult to believe that's what the Pope wants. But let's just talk about one more change and then go to the letter, because I don't want to lose sight of this. Okay. One other change that I think is kind of just interesting is the requirement that the um, that the readings be in English, that the Epistle and the Gospel be read in, in in not in English, in the vernacular of the place where you are. So English for us, but in the vernacular of the place where you are, um, and instead of in Latin as they are now, and according to the approved liturgical uh, te- the l- liturgical translation of Scripture. So that means in the United States. The extraordinary form communities will have to read the epistle and the gospel from the New American Bible, which is our approved liturgical translation of the, of the Bible, which nobody likes, and everybody it thinks is, is in need of desperate revision because it's a very, uh, by most estimations, a very bad and very weak translation, very clunky, yeah. very jargony, yeah, very. It takes beautiful, literally yeah. correct. It, it translates poetry into prose, bad and prose, and bad prose, yeah, and so it's, it's it's it is. I think that will be. Uh, My Aramaic is not brilliant, but
1: I guarantee you our Lord and Savior, when he was on this earth, never used the equivalent Aramaic phrase of human
0: beings. Yeah, exactly. So that feels like a particularly... Now we can talk about the point of the thing, because to be honest, I think for a lot of people who celebrate the extraordinary form, that for many people will feel like a particularly sort of grating twist of the knife. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think there are people who don't love the extraordinary form who might say, well... Of course, you have to be in some solidarity with the rest of the church and, hey, we use the NAB here and nobody really likes it, but we use the NAB here. So, welcome to the club of, bad, of this bad translation that we have to use. Which, by the way, the USCCB says they're working on updating, but I'm not holding my breath. So, that is a particularly... Why do they need to update it? I mean, there are other good translations right, in know, the Bible. I know. I have been hearing from people all day who have been saying that that provision feels so i've been i don't know about you ed but i've been hearing from people all day who are reacting to this and priests who are reacting to this and and feeling hurt by this one way or another and that i know has been one thing that they have said has felt difficult for them yeah i can understand why
1: i i can are we are we done with the changes? We yeah, talk, let's, talk okay. the let's talk about the letter. Let's talk about the letter because that's what this is all about. Yeah. I mean, the moto proprio is the means, but the ends are clearly described in the pope's letter, which is it's about the communities. He doesn't like the communities. He doesn't think the communities are a good thing. He thinks they are fostering disunity, in disunity in and dissent. He thinks they're fostering a separate ecclesiology, which rejects the theology of the Second Vatican Council and rejects its validity. He thinks it's divisive. He thinks it's creating arguments which damage the church. This is and this is why I think what you're reading is ambiguities in the mode appropriate. that are going to have to be clarified because they're otherwise unworkable. I think that's the The unworkability is the point. That's the feature, not the bug. Um, The point it seems to me reading the pope's letter is he doesn't want there to be stable communities of the faithful who are attached particularly to the extraordinary form or at least are defined by their attachment to the extraordinary form That he wants there to be a sort of one parish community and if a different liturgy is offered in a different time in a different place according to different ways okay, so be it if you can get around the provisions of the modu proprio, but he doesn't want that to be workable in a way that provides a stable home for communities of people. That that seems to me to be the point. Now, I'm not presenting that as the Pope's opinion with a view to criticism. I'm trying to be as dispassionate as I can about it. I think there is, there are some, at least in places, cases to be made to say that, yes, there are Reasonably stable communities that are deeply attached to the celebration of the extraordinary
0: form of the liturgy, who are also not entirely. Um, there are problems in those communities, right? Yeah. There are problems in those communities, but there are problems not, in my experience in every single. Well, sure. kind of, of, of course there are culture and
1: subculture. There are absolutely problems in every community, um, but again, that that seems to be what this is aiming at. Is it's not aiming at a ref- it's not aiming at a liturgical reform. It's aiming at an ecclesiastical reform. It's aiming right. at. Um,
0: getting groups of people to behave differently and relate to each other in a different way. I think that's right. Now, b- before I – I do want to say one one possible reading of the parish thing because I don't right. want to just lose it. One possible reading of the parish thing is that what the Pope is saying is that the stable place for the extraordinary celebra- for the celebration of the extraordinary form is not to be the parochial church. But that doesn't by itself prohibit the – the occasional celebration of the extraordinary form in the parish church that is one possible reading i just want to put that out there because i'd like to think that might be the reading but even if that's the reading i think what you're saying is true the the pope's letter which came along with the motu proprio makes very clear that in the pope's eyes the communities that are attached to the extraordinary form of the mass are um, divisive and fostering disunity now i would say that i have observed Pro, real ecclesiological and spiritual problems and social problems within those communities, but I would say that that is true. Uh, I guess my sort of the counterpoint to that is I would say that I have observed that in every single kind of ecclesiastical community that I'm aware of, I've observed that in
1: every single ordinary parish on right, a Sunday. Yeah,
0: and and so one question that I think people are asking is like, why these guys who seem, for for whatever else, to be trying, trying, trying to be faithful to the church? I think there's a perception I among some I think. There's a perception among, for example, like Father Spadaro and others who are are advisors to the Pope that these people who love the extraordinary form are not actually trying to be faithful to the church. They're trying to be faithful to what they want the church to be or an anachronistic vision of the church or something like that. Hilarious coming from a Jesuit. Well, but I have to say that's just not my experience of like (laughs) extraordinary form communities are very complex and have, you know, a lot of different facets to them. But I don't think that it's certainly not my experience that they're any more sort of universally opposed to the teaching, some t- aspects of teaching of the church or some aspects of the Roman pontiff or his his vision of the church or his leadership than anywhere else. I mean, there are extraordinary foreign people. You know, Ross that just did this thing, I'm sure you read in First Things about sort of various kinds of sociological movements among intellectuals in the church and he identified you know what what he calls and have, have been known as sort of the tradnistas in other words sort of economically left-leaning uh, young Catholics who are you might say sort of uh, sexually um, conservative as opposed to their economically left-leaning, left-leaning sexual libertine compatriots but who are, who are a- a- adherent to the sort of sexual and moral and family teachings of the church and at the same time economically left-leaning and he sort of identified Identifies them in many ways with the magisterium of Pope Francis, which I think is a fair read. And those are the people who often are young people attracted to extraordinary form communities. That sure, there's a sort of contingent of people who might be averse to Laudato Si' or what they think Laudato Si' says. There's you know a contingent of people who might sort of champion the sort of tropes that the Pope is a socialist and these kinds of things. But I I don't think that's the predominant or central or singularly identifying motif of people who like the extraordinary form. In large part because you have these people who who seem to love the extraordinary form and, in fact, be breaking away from the kind of, um, you know, globalist, neo neo neoconservative, neocapitalist stuff that the Pope himself is so extremely critical of.
1: I think that's true. I For me, I think you should always, and this is true of every um, community or movement or group that arises in the life of the church, and they are always arising in the life of the church, and they always have been, is... And the church's own metric for it is you judge them by their fruits. Right. That's how you do it. And if the fruits of these communities are families with lots of children, um, children that are growing up to offer themselves for religious vocations or to the priesthood, um, that are having a, a, a higher than average devotion to the sacraments, these are good fruits. Uh, stay, that stay married. Yeah, people that stay married. These are good fruits. And, you know, again, I... Sure, i met people who are attached to the extraordinary form of the liturgy and um, consider themselves to be very good Catholics. Uh, but nevertheless, if you probe them on particular issues, will say things more or less akin to... Yeah, but Vatican Council, too, was garbage, and I don't believe in that. Yeah. And But they're a minority of people, in my experience. And again, you can find similarly, if you go to any parish church on a Sunday, you can find a couple of people in there who will also dissent from the, I mean, we've seen opinion poll after it, opinion poll. Yeah, The church the church in the United States, every parish in the United States is full of so-called
0: observant Catholics who think that abortion is fine right. and the, the true presence is is a fairy and, tale. And who will say something which is like historically uh, paradoxical but will say something like, well, sure, humana vitae, but Vatican II sort of preempts that. And it's like, well, first of all, humana vitae comes after Vatican II but second of all, that's just not at all true. So yes, you will find, yeah, it is totally true that you will find um, both informed and completely uninformed in every single place where you might go to find Catholics worshipping on any single day uh, of the week and I don't just say Sunday because I mean even among daily massers, people who go to mass with more frequency certainly than I do because I don't go to daily mass every single day you will find sort of various levels of various kinds of dissent, either uninformed or informed dissent and so yeah, to sort of singularly say that that's a feature of this community is not true then there's a question I know that some Latin mass people have been asking which is does the Pope think, that because they've been texting me and asking, does the Pope think it's like us? Like, does the Pope think, is it like a personality thing where the Pope thinks that we don't like him and he's mad that we don't like him. And yes. I, I,
1: I, yes, I think that's exactly it. I think it.
0: there is something to that. I mean, the problem with that is that the church the church is not the Pope and uh, and the, the doctrine of the church is not the Pope. And I do think there are people who unquestionably, there are people who are critical of the Holy Father in those contexts, to be sure. I think there are also people who are real like devotees of the Holy Father and really, really, you know, like him uh, in those groups. But I think there are also sort of devotees, you know, people who are critical of the Holy Father in those contexts. And I think that for whatever reason, largely I think because of some of the people who are advising him, the Pope has been convinced that that is the whole of the sort of um, extraordinary form movement are people who sort of don't like him.
1: Well, I think this is something that we've seen a couple of times in this papacy, and I find it's actually one of the things I I most... Uh, that upsets me the most, is that the Pope often appears to have um, a strong opinion about who doesn't like him, and right. then, therefore whom he's not particularly keen on himself but he seems to get all of his information on who doesn't like him from people who just don't like those people. Right, exactly. And so he
0: gets a lot of advice that like Americans don't like him, but from people who have a history of not liking Americans very much. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I, I mean, it's not great. I, you know, I... He's Pope Francis, he's the Pope, and I love him,
0: and I pray for him every day, and, you know... And we're not generally critical of the Pope. I mean, like, this, no, is, I, this is out of character for me to say, you know, that I see here something which does seem to be personal and a desire of the Pope to, um, uh, you know, sort of undermine the stability of communities of people who seem to be practicing the faith. I, I don't like saying that. I don't like thinking that. But, you know, I heard from I heard from one person today who put it very well, um, I thought, who captured very well the feelings of, I think, a lot of people who go to the Extraordinary Forum by saying, how come the people who don't get mercy are the people who are trying to be close to the heart of the church and you know i I don't want to simplify it to that and i think that there's a way in which that can just breed and foster resentment but there is a frustration i think among people who have been trying to be close to the heart of the church and the sacramental life of the church in the way that makes sense to them who feel pushed out
1: yeah i think that's right although i would offer this perspective on it which is the there have been throughout the church's history communities of the faithful that have arisen that have been um, you know like any community not universally perfect or good or working towards the the total community of the church but by and large have been by and large have been a grace to the church where there have been clear fruits of the Holy Spirit present and the church has acted to suppress them yeah and you know, I part of me feels like, and this this I think goes back to the point of what is this community? This is not the community of people who just never got on board with Vatican II and couldn't deal with losing the mass of their youth. Those people are, de- demographically, they're gone. They're gone, yeah. We're dealing with a new group of people that has arisen with a particular devotion to a mass they never knew was the ordinary form. Right. And you know, if if that community is and is satisfied in itself that it is loving and loyal towards the church, loving and loyal towards the Holy Father, producing fruits of the Holy Spirit in their families and in their vocations and everything else, Then, and they do feel that they're being persecuted or singled out or, you know, attacked, you know, that if that's the case, that does stink, but it's also not a novel experience in the church. and It's not a novel experience for good and holy communities that have thrived in the church throughout history to experience. And that often the aggressive resistance from the from the center of the church against these communities against these movements um, Is the testing fire? Yeah, and and I think there is something to be said about that I'm not saying that this makes it a great idea or um, Makes this a, a particularly charitable intervention by the Holy Father but I would say that if for example Pope Francis has and as, as he does make clear in this letter, I think, said that, look, the point of broadening the expansion of the extraordinary form is to draw back these people who had left the church or were affiliating themselves with these schismatic communities and things like that. But it's Pope Francis's assessment, you know, formed by the feedback of bishops during this sort of global survey, that what's happened is those that have come back are not fostering ecclesiastical unity, they're fostering division within the church instead of before it being without the church. If this is basically Pope Francis saying, well, I'm going to test this in the crucible and see what's gold and what's dross yeah. here and the people who are not particularly affiliated. Or
0: even the Lord saying that and the Holy Father yeah. being an instrument of that without knowing it.
1: Perfectly possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I again, I it wouldn't surprise me because as I said, this has been a, a common experience in the history of the church for a lot of communities and that those who have mm-hmm. a true attitude of filial piety towards uh, towards the church and the authority of the church will remain and will suffer through this but that suffering could be what causes a new flowering down the road
0: that's right or 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 just the fruit of their own sanctification i mean so there's no there is no um recourse here there's no sort of procedural injustice by which people who are aggrieved by this could make a recourse and have it righted. Is there a moral injustice? And don't try, by the way. There's, there's, yeah, you can't even try to make a recourse against a pope. It's if, you, right. if you
1: make a legal recourse against an act of the Holy Father, bad things happen. Yes, so don't exactly. do that. So you, it's
0: forbidden, right? It's, it's forbidden. Is there a moral injustice here? They certainly perceive so. I certainly see their argument. You know, the question it becomes exactly as you say, what do they do with the sense of that moral injustice? Because, you know, i a Christian to do uh, right, when faced with injustice, right, exactly. J.D.? Because I've heard people say all day, uh, well this will drive people to the Society of Pius Tenth and these other communities that are not in the full communion of the church or in, in perfect communion as the, <laughs> as the euphemism is that we're required to use um, what will people Wait, are we the, required oh, okay. to use it that are, the church, that the church am I not allowed to say schismatics no, anymore that the, that the church institutionally uses so I do not understand the politispeak that says that people who do not who, who, who by by active sort of by active decision do not obey their diocesan bishop or, um, or and the Holy reject, Father, the, validity reject the validity of an, of an well I don't say I don't know that the Society of Pius X does that universally they just don't think it does but Everyone else thinks it says. But I, I do not know why it is that we use this political speak that says that they're in perfect communion when clearly there are words that the church has derived to describe people who refuse submission of the Roman pontiff and those who are in communion with him. But the, the, the question is here what will be? What will people do? And I keep hearing people say this will drive people to the society of Pius X. The Pope is responsible for driving people to the Pius, society of Pius X. Ultimately, people who have faced what they perceive to be a grave moral injustice, and I see where, exactly where they're coming from, I get it. Yeah, have to decide what they're going to do about that and what it means to be sons and daughters of the church, and that is not easy. And I say that as a person who has been, in my own view, unjustly sort of wounded by administrative decisions of the church that are wrong. And you know, I don't. I'm not going to get them into the pod, into them on the podcast because this is not sort of JD Sob Hour. But I, I can point to. Particular decisions that have that I have seen made in my own life that I would say this was an injustice made by the administrative decision of the church, and now I have to reconcile with that. And I totally understand the temptation to say "screw these guys."
1: I but I can think of many experiences yeah. I've had, particularly working as a canon lawyer, yeah. where the where the authority of the church has rendered what I considered to be a manifest injustice. Right. Exactly. Uh, not just uh, not just in sort of in its discernment, but in its in, in the facts, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, what do you do in the face of that? It, you have to decide what is what is more important it, to
0: you. And decisions where one might say, and I, I must admit, I have said this to people in authority in the church, I can't do anything about this decision, but you will have to answer for it before Almighty God, and that's just true, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I'm sure I've made unjust decisions. too that, I'll have to answer before before Almighty God if I don't repent of them. But that's just true. But the question becomes, what does one do when one has when one has been the subject of an injustice like that? And the answer that's crappy except that it's life-giving, is to like m- cling more closely to the cross, which it presents. Pray for those who And to the martyrdom, which it you. presents. Yeah, pray for those who persecute you. It is exactly right. You know, um, it's not, uh, the challenges of our Lord to love those who are, have been our enemies isn't, uh, those are not challenges that are, you know, sort of just vapid kind of sayings for a calendar. They're extremely difficult rules for Christian living that are life-giving only because they're life surrendering, you know, unless a grain of wheat should fall, so to speak, is not, you know, is a real deal. And um, if one must accept the martyrdom of this thing, even while calling it an injustice, even while sort of speaking to the pain that it causes, even while speaking to the frustration it causes, this is one of those points at which which all of us have had, which you and I have certainly have, at which one must decide if he is a son of the church or not.
1: Yeah. there is no more radical theological manifesto than the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah,
0: that's right. Uh And
1: uh, none of the people who are described as happy there are what you
0: commonly call having a great time. That's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So that's not to to diminish. You know, one thing that really stuck with me, and we're going to do a little bit of coverage about this, is a a woman who I know who is an outspoken victim survivor of clerical sexual abuse uh, tweeted today that for many people who are themselves victims, survivors of clerical sexual abuse, the extraordinary form has become a somewhat safe place for them because they have had these extremely negative experiences in the context of the ordinary form or in proximity to the ordinary form such that they have a psychological aversion to it. And this other thing is su- something to which they can cling. My God, if they lose it, not to be able to cling to it, God. Injusti- you know, injustice upon injustice or tragedy upon tragedy, you- your heart breaks for them if they lose it. But the question becomes for each one of us, like... To whom to whom shall we go and will we will we accept the cross that the Lord has given us even when it's a cross that comes from someone in authority in the church
1: yeah and I mean you <laughs> at different times Saint Paul and Christ speak about obedience to legitimate authority yeah and they're very clear you don't get a, you don't get a grace for taking a beating that you deserve. You don't get a grace for obeying just things that make you happy. Right. (laughs) There is is a grace to be had in submitting to, you know, I mean, St. Paul actually says this, but, you know, there's a grace to be had in taking a beating you didn't deserve.
0: Yeah. Now, and I think a lot of people think that that means sort of, you know, accepting an abusive situation or something. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that there are these kinds of situations where what can you do? What can you possibly do except make a decision to be in the communion of the church or not and um, that's what's hard about being a Christian man I mean it really is that's what's hard about being a Christian is that maintaining ecclesial communion is not always easy nope Saint, you know, Saint Ignatius sort of famously said, I'm sure you know this, but Saint Ignatius sort of famously said that if the Holy Father suppressed the Jesuits, he'd need ten minutes to mourn the Jesuits and then he'd move on. Well, I, I, I'm not a saint. If the Holy Father suppressed something that I love, it would take me more. The than The Holy 10 Father minutes. did suppress the Jesuits. Just yes, as it's a not a Saint Ignatius' lifetime. Yes, yes, it's not a Saint Ignatius's lifetime, right? Um, and I don't know how long it took the Jesuits of that moment to, to accept the suppression, well, but quite they, a few of them fled to fled Russia. Them, right, exactly. That's what I was going to say, but they didn't quite accept it. They went just went somewhere where they weren't suppressed. Um, they got all bound up in Freemasons. We don't need. To they have a whole to do about whether they were suppressed and Russia or not. But the point is, the point is I am not a saint and I would need more than 10 minutes. Um, and I think for this for a lot of people this is a wounding experience and a difficult experience and one would hope um, that they would have as they process this experience some accompaniment in it. I, I can think of a case. <laughs> I can think of a situation not in canonical practice but in my own like life where something hard happened to, to me because of a decision of the of an authority figure in the church, and I felt it was a manifest injustice, and 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 then I had to realize, like, oh, but the people who make this decision are also the people who are responsible for my pastoral care. So, like, now they have some obligation to like walk <laughs> with me as I sort of mourn this injustice, you know, and be present to me as I sort of mourn this injustice in the art of what Francis calls accompaniment. It's all just bundled up in there, you know, and it's 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 not uh, it's not it is not. Uh, an easy thing to mourn hurting in the church and yet here is the reality of this experience I think for people who are concerned that the extraordinary form will be suppressed or who just have the feeling of being persecuted as a result of this now what the practical effects will be (sighs) will vary considerably by diocese, from diocese to diocese. You know, somebody texted me today and said, is my bishop going to suppress the extraordinary form? And I I actually said, no, I think this is a bishop who would be thought of not to, like, love the extraordinary form, a sort of, you know, a a Midwestern bishop of a large sea. I I guess you would say sort of the second city of America in a certain way. And he said, do you think my bishop is going to wholly suppress the extraordinary form? And I said, no, I I don't think your bishop is going to suppress the extraordinary form there in that windy place where you live. I said, I think he's probably going to limit it to places that are staffed by like a religious community of canons regular of St. John, Kansas, or um, the Institute of Christ, the King, Priest, play, you know, religious institutes that are, that are established, I don't think he's going to like uh, make it possible for young priests and seminarians to be celebrating this all over town. You know, I think it's going to be curtailed more than it would have been, but not entirely eradicated. There are other places where I know that bishops are right now, because I've seen the drafts where bishops are right now working on drafts of decrees that take the authority that Pope Francis has said they've had to regulate this in their own diocese, and then offers sort of broad permission in many ways for priests to, to continue celebrating the extraordinary form. So it will vary wildly from diocese to diocese, but for those who feel like in their diocese they will see it limited or for those who just feel aggrieved or unseen or misunderstood, I think this is one of those moments of just taking that to the cross.
1: That and I think they're also quite a – I think quite a number of Catholics are going to suddenly discover a devotion to the ordinariates of Our Lady of <laughs> yeah, Walsingham and be the of. Really
0: yeah, you were saying that the <laughs> people who might suddenly go to the, the Anglican use. Um, which now we might know what the use is of the Anglican use. Uh,
1: I strongly suspect that anyone but, with an Anglo-Saxon surname was going to say, "Oh, there's Anglican blood in but me it's somewhere." True. You know
0: what people, many people, have been looking for is something more intentional than what they experience, and so, yeah. you know, they may go to places that they know, like the Anglican ordinary to places that they know have this sort of intentionality of existence. But it's also a moment, I think, of, of for for catechesis for parishes to reflect on that great, awesome document that came out of the Congregation for clergy or bishops last year that everyone kind of didn't see um, that talks about sort of the missional identity of the parish and to think about whether the parish is living its own liturgical life um, intentionally, and then whether it's living sort of the life of catechesis and communion intentionally. I think every,
1: not every, most parishes are living their sacramental life and and liturgical life intentionally. I think the question is usually whose
0: intention, whose intention, but sometimes those things are just sort of, yeah, sort of on autopilot for the pastor or for others who have the care of souls and, or those who have care of the hymn books. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, and so it is, I think, an opportunity for reflection on those things. Very much so. Yeah. All right. This is not what I thought we were going to be talking about. I did not fly all the way to Rome to talk about this. I know, but here you are, and here we are. And we've been talking about it for quite some time now. We have. Uh, So, you know, there's some Vatican Finance stuff, and and, uh, we found some interesting stuff this week. And, uh, you know, Vatican Finance, Vatican Finance. And, uh, (laughs) you know, we'll talk more about that next week. I'm sure we will. All right, everybody. Uh, You, Ed, you Mm want to go get some, like, uh, I don't know, pasta? Yeah, we could go get...
1: Cacio e pepe which is the pretentious roman
0: yes way of saying salt and pepper yeah. well it's
1: it's basically carbonara I yeah mean, let's be honest yeah it's, it's true it's a pretentious roman affectation to say oh no it's very true like the traditional roman dish you can get the the roasted pork which yeah, is yeah, lovely yeah, but you yeah. really got to go outside of the city to get the and you got to go in the
0: fall yeah yeah
1: um or you can get the tripe yeah which i'll be honest when it's done well I like it. Okay. There you go. You get it. I don't know. We're, we'd, I don't know. We'd have to really hunt up a place that did it well. Let's go hunt up a tripe place.
0: Okay, everybody.
1: I'm going to drink a agroni. That's the first thing I'm going <laughs> to do.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to the Pillar Podcast, a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting and Pillar partner, Ed Condon, which, by the way, when we checked into our flights to Rome, we found this really weird thing. We, I bought our tickets at the same time, and we found this really weird thing where they merged my middle initial and Ed's middle initial and gave us both two middle initials and did other things that made us think that the airline may have gravely misunderstood the nature of our partnership. In any case, we'll be back next week and uh, Ed say Arrivederci. Yeah. <laughs> Ciao, bellas.